0: When I was in my early 20s, which was years ago, I worked at a factory where Jesus was a word that was not spoken with reverence. I was the odd man out in many ways. One time I was in the break room, I was reading my Bible, and a guy came in. He saw what I was reading. And then he commenced to tell me how the Bible was full of errors, how it spoke against itself. He told me how it had been disproved. It was a lovely conversation. This morning's topic has to do with rejection. And I understand that this could hit hard to many of you out there. So I want you to know that I come at this tenderly. As we strive to be witnesses for Jesus, rejection is inevitable. If you take a stand for Jesus Christ, at some point, probably sooner than later, you will be rejected. And I want to talk about that this morning. How do we face gospel rejection? Now, I use the term gospel rejection because I want to differentiate it from every other kind of rejection. If you're rejected for your ethnicity or for your social class or for your political views or for something else, I want to acknowledge that's awful, that's painful. And that's a result of living in the sinful world that we live. And I'm not minimizing those ways of rejection. But I want you to know that's not what I'm talking about today. I'm talking about gospel rejection. That is being rejected because you take a stand for Jesus Christ. You will be rejected at times. In fact, Jesus promised it. And how do we handle that? I want to give you three points from our text this morning for handling gospel rejection. When rejected by the gospel, here's your first point. Grieve the unbelief. When rejected by the, because of the gospel, grieve the unbelief. Join me. I'm in Mark chapter 6, verse 1. Mark writes, He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to him, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. So we read here at the top of Mark chapter 6 that Jesus went away from there and he came to his hometown We're entering a transition time in the book of Mark. We've been studying in a a particular passage called Jesus' Later Galilean Ministry, where he's teaching mainly in Galilee. But we're about to enter a new section. And this is where Jesus is going to extend beyond Galilee. It starts with him Going back to his hometown of Nazareth. Now he's still in Galilee, but he goes home, not to Capernaum, as we've seen in the past, his kind of base of operations. He's going where he grew up. He's going back home. Nazareth is really just a short distance away from Capernaum. I've got a map here. You can see it's only about 20 miles away. It's not far. But of course, by foot, it would take maybe a day and a half to travel. He comes home, and the text tells us that his disciples are with him. In other words, his disciples, many of whom are from Capernaum, have left their home, and they're traveling with their rabbi. And this tells us that Jesus is not just coming to Nazareth for a visit. He's got something he needs to do there. And in the next section of Scripture, we're going to see that he's going to take these disciples, and he's going to send them out. Now, you may remember a few chapters ago in chapter 3, Jesus set aside the twelve. He set them aside to be with him, to watch him, to learn for him, and prepare for what's about to happen. But before we get there, Jesus has something to do in Nazareth. What does he do? Look at verse 2. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished. Jesus goes into the synagogue there in Nazareth, just as he's done in other cities. We've seen him do this before, and he teaches, and the people are astonished. And at first, that might seem like a good thing. People are astonished at his teaching. He teaches as one with authority. But you know, they were not just astonished, which, which can mean amazed or dumbfounded. This is not a good astonishment. There's something behind this astonishment. Keep reading in verse chapter two, verse two. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, "Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? Now what are they saying? They ask these series of questions. Where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom? How are such mighty works done by his hands? In other words, they're questioning the origin of what Jesus is doing and what Jesus is teaching. They're questioning where did he get the ability and the power to do these things. Notice how interesting it is. They're not denying these things. They aren't denying that he teaches with authority. His words actually astonished them. They're not saying that he's teaching a lie, and they're not denying his miracles. They're not saying his miracles are fake. They're not questioning the validity of his ministry. They're questioning the origin of his ministry. Look at verse 3. They say, is not this the carpenter? The carpenter... Now, the carpenter, you probably know, that was Jesus' trade. He learned that from his father, Joseph, who was also a carpenter. And we often associate this as someone who works with wood. In the first century, though, a carpenter was someone who worked with a variety of materials. He could work with wood. He could work with stone. He could work with metal. Jesus was probably familiar with all of these materials. And remember, he didn't begin his ministry till he was about 30 years old, which means that all through his teenage years and his 20s, he most likely grew up working his father's business. He was a craftsman, and he grew up doing that here in Nazareth. So by saying, isn't this the carpenter, what they're saying is, isn't this just one of the boys? Isn't this guy one of us? Just a blue-collar worker? He's a local yokel. And then they say of him, he's the son of Mary. Now that may not mean anything to us, but it probably was meant as an insult in this culture because you always identified somebody by their father, not their mother. Women in this culture were not regarded as highly as men. So by identifying Jesus by his mother, they're probably hinting at the rumor that Jesus was illegitimate. You may remember... When Mary and Joseph were engaged to be married, Mary was found to be with child. And the rumor mill would have exploded about this. Jesus probably grew up with the stigma that he was not Joseph's son. Which is ironic if you think about it, because that's true. Although it wasn't what the people thought. So by pointing out here that he was the son of Mary was probably an insult. By pointing out that Jesus' brothers and sisters, these were those born to Mary and Joseph after Jesus, they're reinforcing the idea that Jesus is just one of them. He just grew up among us. Where is he getting all this wisdom? Where is he getting this power to do these miracles? You know what's going on here? That old saying, familiarity breeds contempt. They were so familiar with Jesus as a child and as a young man that they could not wrap their minds around who he really was. They were stuck on Jesus as a Nazarene. They could not get to Jesus, the Messiah. And then the next sentence at the end of verse 3, and they took offense at him. Now that's a sad statement. The word offense is the word scandalizo. It's related to the word scandalon, where we get the word scandal. It means to shock through word or action. They are shocked and offended. How dare this man say and do these miracles? He's a simple Nazarene. He's got no right to do this. He's got no right to say this. Where does he come off? That's their attitude. Rejection. Now, we've seen this type of response to Jesus before. We saw it with the Pharisees at the end of chapter 3. The gospel will be rejected by some. And how does Jesus respond? Look at verse 4. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. What Jesus is saying here, he's he's quoting a proverb that circulated both Jewish and Greco-Roman contexts He's essentially saying that a prophet is honored everywhere except where he grew up because, as I said earlier, familiarity breeds contempt. We've already seen from our study in Mark how Jesus' brothers rejected him. His own family has already done this, and now we're seeing that his hometown is rejecting him. And isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting because you'd think that the people who knew him best would accept him quickest because they would have observed him. Wouldn't they have noticed that he was without sin? Wouldn't they have picked up that there was something different about him? Wouldn't someone in Nazareth had thought, this boy's going on to do greater things someday? Apparently not. And by the way, this is the only time in Mark that Jesus refers to himself as a prophet Not only does this phrase apply to him in the sense that he is rejected by those familiar with him, but he is also subtly identifying that the fate of many prophets will be his fate as well. Just as many prophets were rejected by their own families, so was Jesus. And just as many prophets were killed because the people didn't like their message, so will Jesus be killed. The people of Nazareth display disbelief. And you know what? disbelief has consequences. Look at verse 5. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them, and he marveled because of their unbelief. The text tells us he could do no mighty work there. In, In other words, he could not do the vast number of miracles that he normally did. He performed a few to those who were brave enough to bring their sick to him, But by no means is this the usual desperate crowd thronging him for healing. Everywhere that we have seen Jesus go, there's been a crowd except here. They didn't bring him their sick in droves because they didn't believe. By the way, this is not suggesting that Jesus' power was limited, rather that their unbelief prevented him from healing as he did in other cities. Jesus was not going to force himself on them. If they wouldn't bring him their sick, he wasn't going to force himself upon them. Their unbelief kept them from being healed. He could have done so much more, but they were unwilling. See, it it wasn't a lack of Jesus' power. It was a lack of their faith. And then verse 6, and he marveled because of their unbelief. That word marveled is the same word we, see, we saw in chapter 5 when the people of the Gerasenes saw the man who would had the legion cast out. They marveled and they feared Jesus. Here Jesus marvels at the unbelief of Nazareth and you could translate that word disturbed. Jesus was disturbed at their unbelief. And that word unbelief means this. It means an unwillingness to commit. And I think that's very appropriate here because remember, they didn't deny his teaching. They didn't deny his miracles. They simply refused to commit to what his teaching and miracles meant that he, Jesus, was the king and that the kingdom of God was at hand. When rejected because of the gospel, grieve the unbelief. Jesus marvels at their unbelief. He's disturbed by it. And that might sound strange to us because Jesus is God. Didn't he know he was going to get rejected? I believe he did. And yet he is still disturbed. Do you know what that tells us? That tells us that appropriate emotions are mature. It is appropriate to be disturbed when the gospel is rejected. That is an appropriate emotion to the situation. We should respond with emotions appropriate to their situations. Jesus did not respond by shrugging his shoulders, saying, I knew that was going to happen. Oh well. He didn't do that. He responded with an appropriate emotion to the situation, and that's emotional maturity. Emotional maturity is not no emotion. Emotional maturity is also not uncontrolled emotion. Notice that he doesn't wail and bemoan and beg them to accept him. No, he's emotionally mature, which emotional maturity is appropriate to the situation. Jesus is disturbed by the rejection of the gospel, and the same applies to us. Be disturbed over unbelief. When you are taking a stand for Jesus, and it is received with disregard, disinterest, or displeasure, grieve that. Let it disturb your soul. Let it bother you. It's emotionally healthy to grieve over unbelief. Now, what might that look like? Well, it's different per person. Perhaps it might be a pang in your heart, slightly unsettling, just a nudge of discomfort and no more. That's okay. Perhaps for others of you, it could be deep grief that you even shed tears over. And that's okay, too. We're all different. Either way, grieve it. Grieve it and then take it to the Lord. Take your grief to the Lord. Take time to even sit in your grief and pray it to the Lord. Tell him exactly how you feel. And let me add this. Take comfort that your Savior was rejected. He knows how it feels. He identifies with that. Ultimately, the people are not rejecting you. They're rejecting him. Remember that and take comfort that your Savior has experienced rejection. Take it to the Lord. Grieve it. But don't wallow in it. There comes a time when we need to move on. In 1 Samuel 15 and 16, we're told that the prophet Samuel grieved over Saul's rebellion. And at some point, the Lord comes and says to him, how long will you grieve over Saul? And that might seem harsh, but the reality is we can't stay in our grief. We sit in it for a time, but then we have to move on. And that takes us to our next point. Look at the end of verse 6. And he went, ab- he went about among the villages teaching. Here's your second point. How to respond to gospel rejection? When rejected because of the gospel, consider moving on. Consider moving on. In our passage, Jesus is disturbed, and then he moves on. He moves onward, and he moves outward. I'm going to explain that in just a minute. He moves onward and he moves outward, but look at me with verse, in verse seven. And he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if in any place you will not, And if any place will not receive you and will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So Jesus leaves Nazareth. He moves onward to other villages, and he moves outward by sending his disciples I mentioned earlier that this should remind you of chapter 3 when Jesus separated the 12 from his other disciples with the intention of teaching them. Now, we're not giving a time frame, but some time has passed since the 12 were chosen, and now Jesus has a mission for them. And this is one reason why Jesus separated the 12, so they could do what he's about to send them out to do. Jesus here in our passage, verses 7 through 11, he does three things. He gives them authority, he gives them a charge, and he gives them a, reason, a response to rejection. He gives them authority, a charge, and a response to rejection. We're going to look at those three things. First, the authority. He grants them authority over the unclean spirits. And verse 13 tells us that's exactly what they did. They cast out demons just as Jesus did. Note that Jesus had to give them authority. The disciples are not casting out demons by their own authority. Jesus is expanding his ministry through his disciples. He's moving onward and outward, and he gives them authority. They are merely conduits to his authority. Verse 7 brings up an interesting question, though. Should we today practice casting out demons? After all, Jesus gave it to his disciples, right? Should that be something that we do? When we come to passages like this, we need to ask, is this prescriptive or descriptive? In other words, is Mark writing what we should do, or is he simply telling us what happened? I think it would be dangerous for us to take this passage and say what Jesus tells the disciples here are blanket guidelines for the Christian life. I think what happens in this text in many ways is specific to the disciples, so what I'm saying in answer to that question is, no, I don't think this passage supports the idea of us as Christians today going around and casting out demons. I can back that up by saying that the Great Commission does not include that we should cast out demons. I could also back it up by saying of the 21 epistles that are written in the New Testament that give direct instruction to churches, not one of them ever tells us to be in the practice of casting out demons. I don't find that teaching in the Bible for us today. I don't think it's something that we should seek out intentionally. Now, you may remember a couple weeks ago, we dealt with the demoniac. In the Gerasenes, and we dealt with the issue of can demons possess people today? And I told you, yes, I believe they can. They can possess unbelievers, though not believers. Well, you might ask, what happens if we come up against an unbeliever who's possessed? Well, my first question to you would be how do you know they're possessed? We're not Jesus, they're not going to reveal themselves to us like they did to him. We haven't been given this authority that he gave the disciples, so how would we know that they're possessed? They might act weird. Well, so do I when I'm hungry. I mean, how would we know? You get the point. That would be my first question. Secondly, suppose we did know. Suppose we did know that this person was possessed. What then? Well, I would ask you, what does every unbeliever need? Every unbeliever needs Jesus. The only way to get the demon out of the unbeliever is to get the Holy Spirit into the unbeliever, and we can't do that. That's a work of Jesus alone. So our response, I would argue, is that we witness, of course, we pray for the person, but we lean on the Lord to do his work. Now, you and I might disagree on this issue. There's Christians who believe otherwise, But let me just say one more thing before we move on. If anyone in this room believes it's part of their mission to cast out demons, just just let me give you a word of caution because you're on dangerous ground. The enemy is very powerful, and he would love to distract you from your main goal of making disciples and get you onto some side work of casting out demons. So just be careful. Let's move on. Jesus gives them authority in verse 7, and then in verses 8 and 9, he gives them a charge. Read this with me. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. So he charges them here to be simplistic. They are to take nothing but a staff, the shoes on their feet, and the clothes on their back. They're not to take any bread, so they're not to take any food at all. They're not to take any bag, which is probably a reference to a bag that would carry possessions. You can think of it as like luggage. And they're not to carry any money. Does that scare anybody? Now, why does Jesus say this? This seems a bit extreme. Jesus is giving them this charge to go with merely the clothes on their back because he wants them to totally rely on God to provide. He wants them to trust in God to supply their every need. And he further expounds on this in verse 10. He says, and he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. Now, hospitality was very common in the first century. If you were a traveler who entered a town, it was common for people to just take you in to their home. We see this actually all through the Old Testament. In Genesis 19, when angels came to Sodom, Lot, Abraham's nephew, saw them, ran up to them, and took them into his house as guests. That was very common. So Jesus is telling them, whatever house takes you in, stay there until you leave. Now why? Why would he say that? Why stay at this house? Quite simply, it would be rude to accept somebody's hospitality and then up and go to another house for whatever reason. Perhaps someone had better accommodations to offer. Well, it actually would probably do damage to their message if they up and left for something better. Jesus, telling, Jesus is telling them, don't go from a three-star to a five-star just because it's available. Stay where you are. Trust that this is God's provision. Another thing that this would have done is it would have distinguished the disciples from false teachers who taught and were motivated by money. False teachers would also do this kind of traveling around from town to town and they would preach a message and they would teach and receive payment and they would stay at the best accommodations. So by refusing payment and refusing to go anywhere but where they originally stayed, the disciples were demonstrating the authenticity of their message. So Jesus gives them authority, he gives them a charge, and finally he gives them a response to rejection. Follow along in verse 11. And if any place will not receive you, And they will not listen to you. When you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. Now, this act of shaking off the dust, that was an act that Jews did when leaving Gentile cities. To Jews, even the dust of the Gentiles was defiling, and they shook it off. Jesus is telling them to do this very same thing as a sign of judgment against whatever city rejects them, be it Jew or Gentile. In other words, the city is responsible for their own rejection. It's a testimony against them. When, rejection because of the, when rejected because of the gospel, consider moving on. Now I say consider moving on because this is not a blanket statement. It's not a one-size-fits-all situation. If you are rejected because of sharing your faith, that doesn't mean we automatically write that person off. They show disinterest, so I'm not talking to them anymore. No, this is a matter that we should be very careful with. If Elizabeth Elliot had refused to continue working for the Alcas even after her husband Jim was speared to death, she would not have been used by God to bring the truth to those people. So this is something we should proceed with caution. If your neighbor laughs at you for te- because you tell them you go to church, that doesn't mean you shake the dust of their yard off and walk away. However, when met with continuous rejection or when met with vicious rejection, prayerfully consider moving on. Why? You don't want to bruise a green apple. That means if the fruit is not ripe, if the person is not ready, it might do more damage to keep pounding away. It might be best, it might be even better for the witness to leave it alone. Now, what do I mean by move on? What I mean is don't intentionally seek to preach the gospel to that person. Do I mean stop praying for them? Absolutely not. Do I mean refuse to answer them if they ask us a direct question? Absolutely not. Those are golden moments. What I mean is respect that they don't want to hear it. Pray for them, yes. Let your actions demonstrate your love for Christ and for them, yes, but don't push it on them. Now, I am not ignorant of the fact that this is painful for some of you to hear because for some of you, It's your adult children who are rejecting the truth. For some of you, it's your parents or your siblings or other relations or close friends that you are in torment over thinking that they may never believe. So trust me when I say I speak to you tenderly, that is painful. That is hurtful. And I'm not telling you to give up on them. I'm encouraging you to put them in the hands of the Lord. Our family has seen the Lord save hard-hearted people. He can do it. And sometimes he requires your silence. Don't give up praying. Don't give up living the truth. Follow the guidance of the Spirit. When faced with gospel rejection, We grieve the unbelief. We consider moving on. And lastly, we remain faithful. We remain faithful. Join me in verse 12. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. The disciples went out, and what did they focus on? They focused on the message of the gospel that people should repent. This is the same message that Jesus preached in Mark 1.14, and that's the right response to the kingdom of God. The right response to receive the free gift of salvation is that we repent of sin and we believe in Jesus. The disciples preached that message, and they cast out demons, as we mentioned earlier, and all of this was a display of God's power. And the text tells us that they anointed the sick with oil and healed them. Now, why? Did you know that not once in Jesus' miracles is it, does it say that he anointed someone with oil to heal them? Why in the world would they have done that? Well, oil was commonly used in both healing and prayer. In fact, James 5, 13 and 14, you can read this on the screen, says this. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, there was nothing magical about the oil. It was simply used as a symbol. In the Old Testament, oil was used as a symbol of God's presence. Oil was used in the anointing of priests and the anointing of kings. Thus, what the disciples are doing here is confirming that God's presence is with them and empowering them to do these things. The disciples focused on the message and they focused on those who received the message. They were faithful Now, this passage here doesn't tell us if they were ever rejected or not, but it does tell us that they were faithful to do what Jesus told them to do. They focused their energies on those who listened to the message, and that same principle should be applied to us today. When faced with gospel rejection, remain faithful. Don't let discouragement set in. Don't grieve the unbelief to the point you fail to be faithful to the mission Christ has called you to do. Focus your energies on those who may listen, who may receive. I once worked with a guy who had given up on witnessing. He literally told me, I have given up on that. Why? Because he'd been rejected time and time and time again. And although that I get how painful that is and all I get how discouraging that is we should not give up on witnessing to the lost did jesus give up no he went to other towns he sent out his disciples with the same message giving up my friends is not an option remain faithful You may have to pray and ask the Lord to reveal new souls to you so that you can witness to them because everyone else around you has rejected you, but don't give up. Remain faithful. You know, one of the best ways to be energized to remain faithful is through testimony. So I'd just like to take a few minutes to read about a man named David Livingston So hear these words, and this is brief, but hear these words. David Livingston was born on March 19, 1830, in Blantyre, Scotland. Early in his life, he dedicated himself to the mission field, because as he writes, to the advancement of the cause of our blessed Redeemer. Robert Moffat, who was a missionary who'd spent 22 years in Africa, encouraged Livingston to pursue missions in Africa where there were some places no missionary had ever been. After becoming a medical doctor and receiving an ordination, Dr. Livingston moved to Africa in 1841. He spent the next 32 years in Africa as a missionary and explorer. He covered some 40,000 miles on foot and by ox cart, by steamer, and canoe through uncharted territory. He suffered great hardship and much sickness. And at the age of 60, Dr. Livingston died in what is now Zambia. On May 1st, 1873, he was found kneeling beside his bed. In all that time, it is only reported that one African was ever converted because of Dr. Livingston's ministry. But today, because of his faithfulness and his love for the African people, he left a lasting impression on that culture that challenged other people in the 19th century to go to Africa and challenged other people to support ministries to Africa. And God only knows the influence that Dr. Livingston had in Africa. Don't ever give up. Remain faithful. And how do we do that? How do we keep going when rejection can be so paralyzing? We do that by constantly going back to the gospel. Our Lord and Savior didn't give up, even when rejected, even when mocked even when scourged, even when nailed to a cross. He hung there for you and for me, though we rejected him. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He faced humiliating rejection but he didn't give up. He remained faithful and let that motivate you to be his witness. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that amidst the pain amidst the suffering, amidst the humiliation, you remained faithful. Thank you that you did not give up on us. Thank you that you took the cross. Lord, you faced rejection not once, but many times. And let us find comfort in that when you are rejected for the gospel. Lord, help us grieve unbelief as you did. Grant us wisdom to know when to pursue and when to not pursue someone with the gospel. Help us to remain faithful no matter what comes our way. Give us boldness to be your witnesses, we pray in the great name of Jesus. Amen.